Well, not that long ago, the American Psychological Association put out a report, and it was a, it was a report unlike any other they had done before in this particular area of study. It was actually a report, and it covered over 40,000 different people, and it studied young adults uh, in Britain and Canada and in America, and the point of the study was to find out if there was an increase in young people when it came to perfectionism compared to previous generations. So the point of the study was to judge whether or not perfectionism was increasing, staying the same, or decreasing. And this study uh, brought a very bunch of information to light that was very fascinating, although it may not be surprising. Uh, what they found out through 40,000 plus people in Canada, America, and in Britain was that when it came to young adults, perfectionism was on the march. It was increasing rapidly, and it didn't matter if it had to do with physical appearance or academics or it had to do with career there were thoughts permeating young people's minds that they have to be perfect. The lie of perfectionism sort of goes something like this. In order for me to reach a goal, my performance must be perfect. And they found that across three different countries, young people had this dramatic increase when it came to feeling like, if I'm going to reach my goals, if I'm going to be successful, I've got to be perfect. And I don't know if you would consider yourself to be a perfectionist or not, um, but regardless if you do or do not, there are areas in pretty much everyone's life where we feel like in order for us to cross the finish line, we've pretty much got to be perfect or pretty close to perfect. Uh, I was reminded of this several years ago when I was in a small group, and this particular small group was talking about parenting. There are a lot of young parents, people in their early 30s and uh, we were talking about parenting, the challenges of parenting, and uh, one of the women in the group who was a fantastic mother, very godly, very thoughtful, just a wonderful parent, nearly came to tears because she talked about how absolutely horrified she was that she was going to make some mistakes along the way with her kids that would haunt them for life. And it's not hard to see how if we begin to accept the lie of perfectionism that in order for me to be successful, I need to perform perfectly, it's not hard to see when we start thinking that way how pessimism can move right in beside us. Because if we look at the enormity of any goal or task ahead of us, and if we're being honest, we all are imperfect and have weaknesses and limitations. When we look at those two things side by side, our weaknesses and limitations, and a goal or a desire, it's no wonder that we find ourselves oftentimes being gloomy about the future. Well, today I have some amazing news for you from God's Word. We're going to see two encouraging truths in God's Word today from the book of Haggai. The first truth is this, God's presence frees us from perfectionism. And the second truth we're going to see is that God's promises will free us from pessimism. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to go ahead and turn now to the book of Haggai. We're going to be in the second chapter, and we're going to start by going verses 1 through 5. Haggai 2, picking up in verse 1. 
In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Well, what's going on here? Well, if you were with us last week, you saw that we started going through the book of Haggai. And in the day of the prophet Haggai, the Jewish people were recently released from captivity in Babylon for many decades, and they were been brought back into their homeland in Israel. Last week, we saw that God gave a mission to his people, and that mission was that they were to build a temple in Jerusalem to replace the temple that Solomon built hundreds of years earlier that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And if you continue to read through chapter one after where we left off last week, you would have seen that God's people responded immediately in obedience. God's people get busy. They get started on this amazing project of rebuilding the temple, building the second temple in Jerusalem. And about a month after they have began that work, we get the passage that we're in today. And essentially, if you had to sum up the message that God is giving his people, God is bringing a message of encouragement and comfort. Essentially, what God is doing is he is coming and sympathizing with his people and acknowledging how great their discouragement really is. When you think about it, in verse 3, there were some people that were old enough in Haggai's day that would have remembered how amazingly beautiful and impressive Solomon's temple was. Look at verse three. God says this to the prophet Haggai. Who is left among you who saw this house, meaning the temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? What God is saying is, hey, this looks like a pretty bleak assignment that I'm giving you. But in particular, if you are old enough that you are seeing these very humble, meager beginnings of building the second temple, and you're old enough that you remember decades ago how amazingly impressive Solomon's temple was, it must have been even more discouraging. I mean, you can't help but imagine how they would have seen this, essentially, this rubble collected around them and this ragtag group of people wanting to build the temple back together, remembering how amazingly impressive Solomon's temple was years ago. It must have been heartbreaking. I can't help but thinking, in addition to how discouraging that must have been to see how bleak the prospects were and to remember how amazing the good old days were, I can't help but think they must have also considered what are the circumstances surrounding us with building the temple compared to the circumstances when King Solomon built the temple. Because you see, regardless of if you were old enough to have lived towards the end of Solomon's temple or not, you would have known your national history and you would have known what the scriptures capture about 
the time, the economy, and the prosperity of Solomon's kingdom when he, hundreds of years before, built the temple. Let's see what God's word says about the situation that Solomon found himself in when he went about the business of building a temple for God. We're going to do that in 1 Kings 5, starting in verse 2. 1 Kings 5, picking up in verse 2. And Solomon sent word to Haram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Now listen to verse four. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. Pause right there. Solomon is saying, partly because of what a man of war David was, but partly because of how tumultuous things were with other nations during the time of David, he was unable to build the temple. But now Solomon is at a point in time in Israel's history when there is, you know, national security is just through the roof. There are no external threats. There are no internal threats. They are in a time of peace and security. Verse 5, and so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now therefore, command the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Well, when Solomon built the first temple hundreds of years ago, not only was there no military threat, the economy was booming. Did you catch what he said to this person at the end of verse 6? Do you catch what he said to Haram? He says, hey, I want your workers who are known for their skill and artistry to be a part of cutting down this wood that we want to build the temple. And you know what? I'm going to write you a blank check. I'll pay them whatever you think is fair to pay them. The economy is booming. Verse 10, also of 1 Kings 5. So Haram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Haram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Haram year by year. And then finally, jumping down to verse 13 there to wrap up. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all of Israel and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. Get back to the day of Haggai and think about this. If you remember from last week, they don't really have any government or infrastructure. They're certainly not secure from their enemies in any kind of way. And not only that, their economy appears to be in shambles. If you remember last week, their, their economy was essentially cursed because of their disobedience. So put yourself in their shoes. God tells you, I have this mission for you to build this temple. And it's not going to be like in Solomon's time, when you were at peace with all these other nations, when the economy was booming, when you could write blank checks, when you could get tens of thousands of people 
just like that to get engaged with this project. No, these people were a ragtag bunch that had very little income, very little funding, very little organization, very little security, and very little administrative help. It's no wonder that they're discouraged, well aware of the enormity of the task ahead of them, well aware of their own weaknesses, and probably asking themselves, do I have what it takes? It's almost as if they've bought into the lie of perfectionism, that in order for me to achieve a goal, my performance must be perfect. God comes to this people in Haggai's day, and he doesn't finger wag, he doesn't suck his teeth and go, come on, guys. He doesn't come in this callous, cold way. Rather, God tenderly and graciously comes to his people in the midst of their discouragement and gives them some marching orders. Let's look at verses four and five back in Haggai 2. God says to these people, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God comes to this discouraged bunch, well aware of their imperfections, well aware of their limitations, and he doesn't come with the sleight of hand of a motivational speaker and just whip them up with a lot of excitement and selling futures that have no basis in reality. He doesn't come and tell them, hey, just look at the glass as being half full. Rather, he comes to them and he gives them three commands. He says, be strong, work, and do not fear. Now, I don't know about you, but at first blush, when I hear that, that feels like unhelpful advice. I mean, have you ever been really discouraged, really doubting yourself with some endeavor that you're really pouring yourself into, and someone comes around with what seems to be sort of flippant little phrases? I'll tell you the one that gets me, don't worry. Oh my goodness, is there anything less helpful than someone coming to you when you're in the midst of uncertainty and saying, don't worry, and just leaving it at that? The problem with that is, for most of us, there's about a million reasons why we should worry. And if you're gonna come to me and say, don't worry, you need to give me a reason to not worry. What is the basis upon which I can stop worrying? Give me something factual, give me something real that will enable me to put my worries down. Why shouldn't I worry? Why should I be strong? Why should I not fear? Why should I work? God gives an answer in verses four and five. Verse four, God says, be strong, be strong, be strong. And then he says, work in verse four. And listen to what he says next. Work, for I am with you. Work, why God? 
for I am with you. And if you look down at verse five, my spirit remains in your midst. And in light of that, fear not. God is saying the reason you should be strong, the reason you should work, the reason you should drop your fears is simply this. I am with you. My spirit is in your midst. God says the reason we shouldn't fear, the reason we should be working is because he is present with us. I think it's helpful to think about it like this. God's presence equals God's help. God's presence equals God's help. And he's telling these people, hey, I know you know your own weaknesses. I know you know your own limitations. I know the task ahead is enormous. I know the circumstances are lousy. But I want you to be strong and not fear and work. Why? Because my presence is with you. And when I'm present, I'm helping God's presence is equated with God's help. Psalm 46.1 helps us connect those ideas of God's presence and God's active help. Look at Psalm 46.1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Beautiful verse. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. In other words, when we're in trouble, God's presence, when he reminds us of his presence, it's to let us know that he is there helping. But you may be asking yourself, well, what kind of help does God offer? What kind of help does God give? And furthermore, what kind of people does God help? I mean, that's a nice kind of idea that God is helping me, but in what way? Is he sort of on the sidelines rooting for me, cheering me on? Because if that's all he's doing, I'm gonna fail at this thing. What kind of help does God offer, and who are the kinds of people that God helps? Psalm 94, 17 through 18 says this, unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said, my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. The help God gives is not simply rooting for us or cheering for us. It's the kind of help that when we fail and falter and stumble and our foot slips, God is there to mop up the mess. God is there to help work through us, with us, and oftentimes in spite of us. God's help is real help. And his presence is equated with his active work and help to ensure that whatever he calls us to, we can accomplish it. I'm not sure about you, but I'm a person who by nature is anxious. I tend to worry if left to my own devices. And as one other person has said, control is way more important to me than it ought to be. And since that's the case, when I find portions of scripture that help calm me and soothe me and recalibrate my thinking, Man, I treasure them. One of my all-time favorites is another psalm, a third psalm, and it comes from Psalm 127, verses one through two. I love this passage. Listen to this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that good news? That God says, if I am calling you to something and I am in that, I'm gonna see to it that it's accomplished. Now, to be sure, he doesn't say, don't ever build anything and delegate that to God and expect him to build it. And he doesn't say, don't guard the city, expect God to guard it without you guarding. We are called to work. We are called to take steps of obedience and to take action. But he says this, you know, finger-biting sort of neurotic way of getting up as early as possible and going to bed as late as possible and operating as if it's all up to me, he says we can drop that because if God's in it, it will ultimately be successful. God does not require that anybody be perfect in order for him to help them. Here is what God does require. Micah chapter six, verse eight says this. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Walking humbly with God. In other words, whatever God has called you to when it comes to his mission, whatever your specific niche and role is for this particular season, whatever that may be, raising children, leading a group, sharing the gospel, being hospitable, showing mercy to the least of these, whatever he has called you to, the good news is we don't need to be perfect in order to accomplish that mission in our lives. We just need to walk humbly. We just need to hold Jesus' hand and take steps of obedience. And if we do that, God will see to it that we accomplish the mission that he has given us. We have a God who cheerfully mops up our messes. I love this expression. God is a God who draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And since that's the case, we can be free of the tyranny of perfectionism. Now that we've seen how God's presence can liberate us from perfectionism, let's see how God's promises can free us from pessimism. Back in Haggai chapter two, verses six through nine. Verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. What God is saying to this discouraged, beaten down, pessimistic group of people is I want you to work. I want you to not fear. I want you to be strong. And let me give you the end of the story, how this 
rebuilding of the temple actually ends so that you can know where everything is going. And he gives these four I will statements, or in other words, he's making promises, if you will. God is saying, here are four things that I'm sharing with you about what I'm going to do through this temple in the future. Verse 6, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Verse 7, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, and in this place I will give peace. You see, this temple that God's people were building in Haggai's day, it wasn't really going to ever be able to compare to the beauty and grandeur and wonder of Solomon's temple. When you look at the gold that covered the inside of Solomon's temple, when you look at the Ark of the Covenant that contained uh, the, the tablets that Moses received on Mount Sinai, that was in Solomon's temple. The Shekinah glory was in Solomon's temple. And this temple, when it would eventually be built, would be very modest by comparison, except for some renovations towards the end of its existence under King Herod. But do you know why this second temple had more glory and more peace than the first? It's because the King of glory and the Prince of peace, our Lord Jesus Christ, would grace this second temple with his presence. God is promising his people and reassuring his people what the future is going to be like. Have you ever considered why God gives us promises? I mean, why does he do that? Uh, it says that it's impossible for God to lie in the scriptures. So it's not as if when he makes a pinky promise to us, it somehow obligates him in any more way than if he didn't promise. So why does God make these promises? Well, in John chapter 16, Jesus makes a promise. He promises his disciples that after his ascension, the Holy Spirit will be sent to the church. He promises that in John chapter 16. <clears throat> and after doing that, listen to what Jesus says in John 16, 33. After promising that the Holy Spirit will be sent and that they will receive it, receive him rather, Jesus says this in verse 33. I have said these things to you so that you may have peace. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm making promises about things that have not yet come to pass so that now, before they come to pass, you may have peace. God's promises are designed and given to us as sort of a means to an end. They're given to us so that we can have peace before we see the outcome of what is promised. You see, when it comes to God's mission or anything else, when he reassures us of something through his promises, he's encouraging us to take action, but not only take action, but to do so with optimism and hope. Rather than pessimistically walking through life with our heads down, saying, ain't it awful, worried about countless worst-case scenarios that we think might perhaps happen in the future. God's promises are designed to give us a swagger at halftime, regardless of what's on the scoreboard. 
God gives us promises so we can have a confidence at halftime before the game's even finished, regardless of if we're up by a touchdown, tied, or losing by 30. That is why God gives us promises to give us peace before the situation is resolved. But if we're being honest, or at least if I am, there are many times in my life when I'm uncertain about the future, and while I know God's promises are true, and they may even speak to whatever I'm worried about, oftentimes it is so hard to live in light of those promises. Can I get an amen? I don't know if you've ever been on an airplane where there's been a lot of turbulence, but I have, and it's pretty horrifying. Uh, being on an airplane and having a lot of turbulence is something that really is powerful. It's fearful. You're not in control. You don't know what's going on. You feel helpless, and you realize you're in a vessel going hundreds of miles per an hour in the sky. It's a terrifying thing. The reality is, it's much more safe to fly in an airplane than it is to drive on the interstate. I mean, statistically, that's true. It's safer to fly than it is to drive. But if you've ever been in turbulence, turbulence is powerful. Fear is powerful, although oftentimes not real. But God's promises, although they're real, oftentimes don't feel all that powerful. What do we do when we find ourselves in that situation? What do we do when we know God's word promises something about the future or the present, but the fear and the pessimism is so powerful? God's word instructs us in those times to walk by faith rather than walk by sight. The Bible tells us again and again, we are to walk by faith, not walk by sight. What that means is we are to take actions in our lives as if God knows what he's talking about in the Bible rather than taking actions based upon how things appear to me at any particular point in time. We have this choice every day, countless times a day, I believe. If you're a Christian, there are so many chances throughout the day where we can decide to say something or not say something, do something or not do something, rein an attitude back in or let it just run on its own based upon if we're going to act in light of what things seem to be to us or in light of what God says they are. We live in the Capital District and I love this part of the country. I'm from the South, but I absolutely love everything about this area. I love the architecture, I love the old homes, I love the size and pace of the Capital District, I love the Capital District. And you know, you can talk to Christians here and sometimes you get the sense that they think, well, the Capital District's one of the most post-Christian places in the country, which is true. And what often I think is implied in that statement is there's not much hope for us spiritually. You know, when you're interacting with coworkers or neighbors, you get to decide if you're going to open your mouth in a winsome, respectful, humble way, but open your mouth 
you're deciding, am I going to say something or not? Am I going to invite to church or not? You can look at this individual in life through the lens of, man, the capital district's a post-Christian part of the country. Or you can look at it through faith, because God says in his word that the harvest is plentiful. When we are with a coworker or a friend or a relative and we have the chance to share what Christ has done in our lives, we can walk by sight. We can say things in our minds such as this. Republicans don't become Democrats. Democrats don't become Republicans. Religious people often don't become non-religious. Non-religious don't become religious. Eh, I just won't say anything. We can walk by sight or we can walk by faith because God's word says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And either that's true or it's not. Every day we have these opportunities to walk by faith or walk by sight. I think it's a good moment in the life of a Christian when they read something in scripture or have something in scripture brought to their memory in a situation and they say to themselves, this surely ain't gonna work, God. But as Pastor Rex would say, but because you said so, I'm gonna walk by faith here. You know, when you're on mission and you know what God's word says about the outcome, you know how to frame opposition in your life. When you're living on God's mission and you deal with resistance and opposition, you know what it is. It's a plot twist. It's a sad chapter or a discouraging chapter, but it's not the final chapter. We know how this story ends. And in case you're unaware, we're going to go to Revelation 7, 9 through 10 to see how the story of God's mission ultimately will end. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, the Apostle John is seeing into the future in heaven by the Spirit, and he says this, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That's the end of the story. And God reveals this to us and promises this to us so that we don't go through life pessimistically. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like yeast and you put a little yeast in a lump of dough and it works its way through its entire lump. And he describes his kingdom and the mission of God in a similar way that ultimately it will be triumphant throughout the entire world and there will be people around the throne of God and before the Lamb worshiping from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a multitude that's so great that you can't conduct a census. There's too many people to count. That's the end of the story. And that should make an optimist out of the most cynical person among us. God is with us in our presence, helping us, not merely rooting for us on the sidelines, but God is working right alongside us, through us, and oftentimes in spite of us.
In light of this, may God help us to just shed our pessimism and shed our perfectionism. May God encourage us by the truth of his word today to not fear, to work, and to be strong. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you that you're compassionate and tender. We thank you, God, that you're slow to anger. And as Hebrew says, we don't have in Christ someone who is unable to sympathize with us. You, you know how to sympathize with us. You know our frame. You know we are but dust. You know how easily we can be discouraged how often we can rely on our own performance and how often we can be pessimistic about the future in light of that. And God, you come to us and you speak truth, truth that sets us free, truth that encourages us, truth that catalyzes us. God, I pray that through your spirit, you'll do a work in each person in this room that you will help us to get on mission in a way like we never have before You'll free us from the tyranny of perfectionism and release us from the gloom of pessimism. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.